Welcome to season three of Art Matters. I'm your host, Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Search through stories, past episodes, and publicly held artworks on our site, artuk.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Art Rebels of Their Day, the Pre-Raphaelites were a collection of artists, writers, and critics with a shared vision for their realist approach to art. Founded in 1848, their name stems from their rejection of the ideas promoted by the Royal Academy at the time of painting in the classical style of Raphael. They preferred the early Italian Renaissance style of the Quattrocento, which in the timeline of art history was, you guessed it, pre-Raphael. The group weren't only using art as a tool of expression, they had a lot to say, and briefly produced a magazine to convey their ideas. I taught the Pre-Raphaelite journal to students, particularly master students, when I was at the University of Reading. The journal was called The Germ, and it was published in 1850. It was a a huge flop, actually. They they only managed to sell uh, four issues before it folded. That's John Holmes, professor of Victorian literature and culture. His book, The Pre-Raphaelites and Science, explores the relationship the Brotherhood had with scientific principles. I was very struck that the Pre-Raphaelites kept writing in that journal, even though it was only issues long in every issue there's a discussion about the relationship between art and science and so I thought this this seems to be something that for them is fundamental to what they're trying to do in their art. The clues to their connection with science are there if you know where to look. For example the idea of speaking truth to nature was a principle John Ruskin argued was an artist's central purpose. So Ruskin was the leading art critic of the 1840s I suppose 40s and 50s and he became a little bit of a mentor to the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, he, he was a patron to them. He was very much richer than they were. But his ideas about truth to nature were sort of similar to theirs, but not exactly the same. And that, that they, they both felt that art should reflect what the, the painter sees. So you shouldn't presume that art should uh, copy or imitate the practices of previous art. Instead, there was a duty on the artist to, to look at what he or she saw in front of them and paint it with that kind of truth, that accuracy, that precision. It sounds a little bit like the realists. Yes, indeed, it is. But it, but, the French realists. Yes, exactly. But with yeah. a different methodology, I think, in that, in that what the Pre-Raphaelites mm-hmm. do that is so extraordinary is painting every field within the painting, within a, a given canvas, with the same level of detail. So, so famously, they... Uh, went against the, the notion that there would be a background and a foreground and that the background would be, as it were, if not sketched in, at least given much less attention to detail than, than the characters. So you would, would conventionally foreground the human subjects in, in the form of painting that they were doing, which was, which was they referred to as history painting. Their own pr- mm-hmm. approach instead was that actually everything you see has to be painted with the same degree of minute observation. And I guess the other thing that distinguishes them from, from the realist is in that word, that word nature, truth to nature, which is partly a kind of romantic idea. You get a sense of, of, of nature as being morally uplifting, that sort of tradition you get from words with some people. But it's also a scientific idea. 
the idea that there is an external natural world out there and that, that the artist can observe it, can record it, and indeed can actually investigate it. A desire to portray things realistically does have a scientific ring to it, but I was curious to know how much of an active role science played in Priaphilite thinking. Was it a small part of their ethos, or was it central to their work? Frederick George Stevens, who was one of the seven original members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, he didn't ever really become a painter, although he did some painting, he mainly became an art critic. But he articulated very clearly in the germ that, first of all, the artist's uh, standard of observation had to be matched that of a scientist. So if you're painting uh, rocks, they, you, you had to understand geology and you had to observe them with the same precision that a geologist would. Secondly, that science was for, for Stephen something that was very progressive. So he was very interested in chemistry because for him, chemistry was a subject that at the beginning of the 19th century was really virtually nowhere. And over the course of the first 50 years, it just uh, transformed enormously. You get atomic theory coming in, you get molecular chemistry coming in, uh, a massive new expanse in knowledge. And his view was that art should, art too could progress in its own sphere morally and in its precision and truth and accuracy, if it imitated the sciences. And, and the others of them articulated this too. William Michael Rossetti, as I say, used it well. Well, it was he who used that word investigation. And he used, he talked about how the artist had to be true to the results of the investigation, whatever they were. So there was a kind of honesty and integrity to this enterprise. The art critics in the collective clearly laid out their ideas about the importance of scientific thinking. If we have this evidence from the writers of the group, is it possible to re-examine Pre-Raphaelite works through this lens? How might we see things differently? I was really interested to think, how does Pre-Raphaelite art change if you take these claims seriously? So to give you a kind of example, if we think about Ophelia, uh, I mean, maybe the most famous Pre-Raphaelite painting, John Everett Millet's Ophelia. Mm -hmm. There are several ways in which you can see this practice in that. So the first is the act of painting outside for kind of somewhere between three and five months, Millet standing by that riverbank in Ewell, painting every plant with extraordinary detail, um, recording, as it were, the natural history of that landscape in very, very, very precise terms. So you've got two things going on there. You've got, got science on the model of natural history, and that's one of the things that recurs in their painting, particularly actually when people pick it up as a landscape, for landscape painting, pick up pre-raphaelitism as a model for that. But you've also got actually an act of experiment. And again, this is a word they used. Um, Stevens particularly uses this, this word experiment. We need to proceed by experiment, he says. And the experiment here is, what can you achieve, what can art achieve through painting directly onto canvas in the open air, uh, in a particular location over a, a protracted period of time? There'd been open air painting before that, of course, but never with this kind of intensity and this kind of dedication. And so that's the, the kind of the first element of, of that painting, Ophelia, which we can see in, in those terms, scientific terms. Then the next thing is, uh, there's a very famous uh, anecdote about this painting, which is that Millet wanted to see exactly how Ophelia's dress would float on water, how the hair would float on water, uh, <clears throat> how indeed actually the body would be positioned with su supported by water. 
So he got the model, Elizabeth Siddle, to pose in a bath. And uh, it was one of those kind of old Victorian freestanding baths. And so he was able to keep the water warm, or at least attempted to, by lighting dozens of candles underneath it. But because he was such a meticulous mm. painter, he painted for, I think it took him about eight hours. And, and no matter how many candles you've got, the bath water is going to get cold. And Elizabeth Siddle famously called a chill. Yes. Uh, her father came round and was rather cross with Millet. Millet paid the, the doctor's fees and so forth. Now, that's a story that seems just kind of absurd. She must have looked like a prune well, as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think, I think <laughs> one of the reasons why she's so pale, actually, in that painting, I mean, she, was a, she was a pale woman anyway, but the, the cold is that there's partly being recorded, actually, in that painting. And, and, the, and the numbness, think about how uh, Ophelia's face looks. So one of the things, again, that, that they said they would do, so you've got the experiment, and I think, I think actually, we can think of this in a way as him, Millet, recreating, trying to recreate almost in what we would call laboratory conditions, if we were talking about it as science, trying to recreate in laboratory conditions the condition mm -hmm. of a woman floating in water, about to drown. And actually, I think, although the experiment, in a sense, went wrong, she got a cold, it actually went more right than he had intended it to, because he was able to paint her in this state of numbness. They weren't just exploring natural sciences. They also had views on psychology, which at the time was deemed a slightly dubious branch of science. Their view of it was that psychology was kind of a bogus science at the time, so in about 1850. And it's true that, that really psychology... If you look at the history of science, if you look at the, the, the journals, the psychological journals, they're only very, very just beginning to be um, published around the end of the 1840s, beginning of the 1850s. It's only really through the 1850s that you get in any serious attempt to theorize psychology. So what you've got before that is you've got people measuring people's heads and, and judging psychology on the basis of people's faces and things. And the brain might say this is, this is nonsense. And actually the artist can achieve psychology and understanding of psychology better than these uh, quack scientists. And so what happens with Ophelia, if you look at the drawings that he did for it, particularly um, his original design for it, I think it's in, it's in Plymouth now, it looks really melodramatic. And she's mm -hmm. got this sort of terribly melodramatic facial expression. If you look at the real painting, you've got a much more subtle psychological study of despair, of numbness, uh, actually that, that literal cold as well. So you've got natural history observation, you've got experiments in painting, you've got experimental conditions in creating the situation for the painting, and you've got this kind of probing of psychology. All of those are things that the Pre-Raphaelites understood as, as, as imitating the action of science within art. Ophelia offers insight into the mental state of the model, but there are other ways of exploring psychology through the dynamics between figures portrayed in a painting. Looking at Millet's painting Isabella, John gave me a glimpse into the underlying subtle themes of the work. It's based on a story that originates with the Italian medieval writer Boccaccio. So in that sense, it's, it's a pre-Raphaelite story, um, but they really get it through Keats. And the story is about uh, Keats's, from Keats's poem, Isabella and the Pot of Basil. The story is about uh, a young noblewoman, an Italian woman called Isabella, who uh, falls in love with Lorenzo. And Lorenzo is her steward or perhaps kind of a, 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 certainly a servant within the household, a kind of educated servant, but a servant nonetheless. And um, her brothers, mm -hmm. who are Italian aristocrats, can't abide this. They lure Lorenzo into a into a forest and they kill him and um, uh, 
have his head cut off. And Isabella follows and, and, and into the forest, finds uh, him, takes the head, puts it in a pot of basil, uh, and from that a basil plant grows, and it's, so it's a, it's a very sort of macabre and odd image. But the moment in the story that Millet paints is, is early on. <clears throat> so in the foreground, so it, it's a dinner table scene, and in the foreground on the right-hand side, you have Isabella, and Lorenzo is sitting next to her, and he's offering her some oranges on a plate. And opposite them are the two brothers. And what is really striking, again, is if you move through the sequence of designs for this painting, how much subtle the, more subtle the psychology gets. So it starts off with this kind of aggressive, melodramatic response on the part of the brothers. And the brother in the foreground, his, his, his leg is kicking out in the final painting. Now, in the, in the designs, that's very clearly kicking out towards uh, Isabella's greyhound, who's in front of her. The greyhound flinches away. What happens to that in the final painting is that he's, he's actually not directly thinking about Isabella, not aggressing towards her. What he's trying to do is crack a nut in a nutcracker, and the nut won't budge. So he can't crack the nut. And what you're seeing is this kind of act of, of furious frustration uh, and rage. And in fact, what's happened is that Millet has recognized that actually in that dinner table scenario, what we've got here is a brother whose anger has been sublimated. Uh, he's, he's still feeling that anger, but he's not expressing it directly. It's, it's leading him to be frustrated and enraged with the things around him. The second brother, too, in the design, he's looking, as it were, through a glass of, of wine that he's holding. He's nibbling his fingers in this very nervous, tense way, and he's looking across at Lorenzo and Isabella. Um, but when you get to the painting, you'll see that although he's, he's still nibbling his fingers, there isn't the same tension in the face. So it's a sort of more contemplative, um, meditative act. And he's actually looking into the wine glass. So again, we can see that his rage and, and kind of anger has become much less theatrical. It's again uh, sublimated. It's kind of controlled now. And then the other thing that happens in the painting that I think is really interesting, and it's not there in the design at all, or at least the, the figures in the design, but in the design, the, the, there's a man sitting behind the two brothers or next along that side of the table. And in the design, he's just looking at his plate of food. But in the painting, He's the only person who's actually looking across at Lorenzo and Isabella. And what's really striking about him is that he's smiling, uh, maybe even slightly chuckling. Um, he certainly is looking at them and he's kind of, it's an indulgent look on his face. He's almost pleased to see this romantic couple, perhaps, or maybe he's pleased with himself because he's noticed that something is going on that nobody else seems to have seen. I think he's really interesting because he's a figure who, within the scene, sees what is going on around him in terms of comedy. For him, it's romantic, it's funny, it's engaging. We, because as the viewers, we're supposed to know the, the key story, we see this as a tragedy about to unfold. But what Millet does by planting this chap in the picture is show us that there are always different perspectives, there are always different vantage points. And there are always different possibilities for how a narrative will unfold. It's interesting because the experiment is happening on multiple levels. Like you said, it's Malay mm. exper experimenting, but also there's an experiment to see, do we pick up on the subtleties of what's going on as the viewer? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think this is one of the things that was so challenging about pre-Raphaelitism to a lot of those original audiences 
was that it had changed the language of painting in such a way that actually I think a lot of people didn't pick up on these subtleties. Um, and, and so uh, things seemed to, to just look ugly or grotesque or exaggerated, or why was so much attention being paid to the background, or why wasn't this narrative explaining itself in the way that a lot of Victorian genre painting does? It sets out the narrative and you can clearly very deliberately read it. And it, there's no, there's no um, scope to probe further, which there really is with this period, I feel like, material. We can see the relationship going one direction, where the Paraphylites were carrying out their own art experiments in the name of science, but the relationship with science was reciprocal. There were a number of scientists that valued their thoughts and became allies in their mission. At a point in time when, Ruskin aside, the art establishment were just poo-pooing the Paraphylites and, and a lot of journalists were kind of laying into them, including Dickens. Uh, the people who were responding positively to them were often scientists. So, um, for instance, Holman Hunt's painting, The Hireling Shepherd, was bought by a naturalist who's called Broderick. And, and actually, this led to, to two more things. One was, was the creation of the painting Our English Coasts, which was, has been read as a sort of uh, an allegory for the vulnerability of the English to foreign invasion or an allegory for... Um, strayed sheep being the, the kind of the, 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 the people who aren't properly being looked after by the priesthood and so forth. But actually it was commissioned by a friend of Broderick who's called Charles Maud as a painting of sheep. So you get a sort of situation where their observation of uh, other animals and the lateral landscape leads to commissions from scientists and their associations that they're, 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 they're kind of friends. Another friend of Broderick's who got to know them was Richard Owen. And Richard Owen was one of the most influential scientists in England. He, he went, he, I think at that point, was just about to become director of the Natural History Museum's, um, sorry, director of the British Museum's Natural History Collections. And he remained really close to the Pre-Raphaelites. He, he took Millet's children round the British Museum to show them the Natural History Collection. And he, um, there was a, a, a close member of the Pre-Raphaelite circle called John Lucas Tupper. And when Tupper was applying for a job, Thomas Woolner, the Pre-Raphaelite sculptor, suggested he ask Owen for a reference. And Tupper, I remember right, reading a letter where he refers to Owen as something like um, the dear, bright, blue-eyed, boy-like Owen. Now, if you know about Owen in the context of the history of science, most of his scientific colleagues hated him because <laughs> he was very, very ambitious for himself. Uh, he was always, um, he, he, he was the kind of man who wouldn't brook an equal. So. If you were prepared to be subordinate, Owen would help you on with your career and, and such like as a scientist. But if you wanted to challenge any of his ideas or wanted to establish yourself independently, he was a, an implacable enemy. And so people like T.H. Huxley, Charles Darwin, uh, Gideon Mantell all fell foul of Owen at various stages. So he, was, he, was, he wasn't a nice man as a, as a scientific colleague, but these artists loved him. And he was clearly very generous and very uh, friendly and, and kind. And, and he, um, in the end, his portrait was painted just after the Natural History Museum was opened by William Holman Hunt, pre-Raphaelite pre uh, oh, painter. interesting. Yeah, it's a wonderful portrait. And, and, and really, again, so interesting because Hunt portrays Owen, who'd been a friend for maybe 30 years by that point. Um, but he's an old man by now. He's he's in his seventies, and also by that point, Owen's science 
Owen was a Owen had become out of date. So Owen was a really a um, from the school of natural theology. He thought that science revealed God's creation, and he okay. he kind of accustomed himself a little bit to evolution, um, providing it was under God's direction. But he never could stand Darwinian science. Um, he kind of held out against that when he built the Natural History Museum. Uh, which is a, an amazing building, but the one half of it is decorated in extinct animal forms. One half is decorated in living animal forms. So it's a building that refuses in its narrative the kind of continuities of evolution. And when okay. Hunt comes to paint him, this is a sort of man, in one sense, at the height of his power, his museum's just open. But on the other hand, he's at bay within the scientific community. And you can really see that in his face and in his posture. There's a wariness, an edginess to that portrait. It's in the Natural History Museum, by the way. So it's really, it's in their treasures gallery. It's well worth seeing. It seems to me like Sir Owen wasn't the best ally if you were trying to establish your ideas in the scientific community. But there were others that took their approach to art seriously as well. There was a lot of respect for what they were doing among the scientists. Um, so it, was, it wasn't just indulgence. I think it was also actually scientists recognised that these were people who were trying to give art an, a new and serious program through mm -hmm. practices that the scientists could recognize were, were scientific in a way. The place where that's most vividly realized is in the Oxford University Natural History Museum. So this is a museum that was built in the 1850s by, mm -hmm. it was actually the, the kind of pioneering scientist on it was Henry Ackland, who was one of Owen's old pupils. He, was, uh, he went on to be professor of medicine at Oxford. He was, I think, reader in medicine when it started, professor by the time it opened. And Ackland had been a university friend of Ruskin's. Um, so he was sort of aware of, uh, of Ruskin's ideas, and he got to know one or two of the prerequisites. And when the contract uh, was won to build the museum, and when, when because Ackland had to campaign for a long time to get it built, uh, and Ackland was quite determined both that he would directly involved the pre-Raphaelites. So Rossetti, Dante Gabriel Rossetti was a consultant on the project. Elizabeth Siddle was, uh, Fort Maddox Brown advised in some ways, but also a lot of pre-Raphaelite sculptors were directly involved. Thomas Woolner, John Lucas Tupper, who I mentioned, Alexander Monroe. So that he got them directly involved. And also he said that he that the natural history decoration at the museum was going to be based on the principles of pre-Raphaelitism. So that principle of kind of extremely uh, scrupulous observation, attention to detail, and yet also in some way through paying attention to detail, you can kind of honor the thing that you're painting. You can kind of celebrate it or carving in the case of the, the museum. So when the museum carvings were done, they brought in plants from the Botanic Gardens in Oxford and this firm of sculptors, an Irish firm called the firm of O'Shea, the James and John O'Shea, they were brothers and their nephew, Edward Whelan, did these magnificent uh, carvings based on these botanical specimens, which have got so much life to them. And this is exactly what Ackland imagined being, being kind of pre-Raphaelite sculpture. So you have a museum where the language for communicating science is directly modeled, the, the visual language is directly modeled on the scientific project of the pre-Raphaelites own art. So it becomes a sort of returning, repaying the compliment, if you like. And it's yeah. the other thing that's extraordinary about it is, of course, the pre-Raphaelites were really controversial, very young. None of them had done 
big full scale portraits statuary, which is what uh, Woolner and, and Monroe and, and Tupper were doing at the museum. And yet this establishment of universities, Oxford University, is prepared to take a punt on these, in some ways untried, very controversial young British artists. Head over to artuk.org to view the article for this story. There you'll find images of the paintings we discussed in this episode, and you can also hunt for other pre-Raphaelite images held in public collections. See if you can find other interesting connections with science, and give us a tweet with your thoughts. If you want to read even more on the subject, pick up John's fantastic book, The Pre-Raphaelites and Science, which goes into even greater detail on this topic. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back for season three and please join us again next time.